Good to see all of you non-deer hunters here today, and I am delighted to be with you. We have much to be thankful for, don't we, uh, here in this country. I am, I've always been amazed that many of us will be paid on a day so that we can give thanks, and uh, that doesn't happen everywhere. Sadly, uh, Thanksgiving is often so busy and full of things, we don't take much time for Thanksgiving. Bridge Kids, thank you so much for being here. You are dismissed. For the rest of us non-deer hunters, we uh, will be in the book of Habakkuk. We're starting a new three-part series. Habakkuk is a minor prophet. Um, prophets like this are hard, and this is going to be like kind of a hard passage. And um, every once in a while I do a sermon and, and just say, you know, this is not a feel-good sermon. Um, but I think there's a lot here for us. Have you ever been disappointed with God? A man named David Drusky was disappointed with God. He was so disappointed that he took God to court. There are a few people that if you look up uh, this who took God to court, there are, there are quite a few people who have tried this at different times. Drusky was fired from his job with U.S. Steel in 1968, and he spent the next uh, 30 years sort of protesting against uh, U.S. Steel. And um, at some point, after 30 years, he decided to take God to court. The lawsuit against God read this way, the defendant, God, is the sovereign ruler of the universe and took no action against the leaders of his church and of his country for their extremely serious wrongs which ruined the life of David Brusky. For compensatory damages, Brusky requested these things. He wanted the return of his youth. I could appreciate that. The skill of a great guitarist. I think I would enjoy that too. And the resurrections of his mother and his pet parrot. It's true. Drusky assumed that God would fail to show up in court. Actually, God was there. He assumed that God would fail to show up and then therefore he would win his suit by default. The Syracuse uh, court ruled that his case was frivolous and therefore denied. The problem seems to be that God does not always do what people want him to do. Have you ever been disappointed with God? Have you ever gotten frustrated or angry with God and you have prayed and you've asked him for important things? And you have asked over and over. And he was silent. As if he didn't care. This was Habakkuk's experience in the 7th century before Christ. He was very disappointed with God. And we see his, uh, 
the prophet's disappointment in verses 1 through 4, and I just want to read that to us as we uh, get started here. I'm in Habakkuk. Can you say that? Habakkuk. Some people say Habakkuk. Either one is okay. Chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that, the, so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk is disappointed with his God. And so in verses 1 and 2, it's, he kind of starts with, God, why don't you listen when I pray? Now, a little context here, I think it will help us. Think in terms of, you know, we just did the book of Jonah. I'll try not to get them confused. But the book of Jonah was written about 150 years earlier. And Jonah, remember, was called to Nineveh to preach against that city. And Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was the strongest uh, nation or strongest empire in the world. And they ruled the world. But times changed. And the Assyrian Empire began to lose its power. And it was badly defeated in 609 B.C. at the Battle of Carchemish. Now, I know that doesn't interest you. But that's an important time for secular historians as well as biblical historians. And King Josiah, the great king of Israel at, a time, at his time, the one who brought restoration to the law and to worship in Jerusalem, the, the one who brought revival to the nation, was killed at Carchemish. And things began to spiral down quickly. Habakkuk's probably written from about 609, somewhere after 609 B.C. to 605 B.C. And during this time, things in Israel got bad. They went from worse, from bad to worse. I can say worse to bad. It was bad in Israel. And um, Josiah's son became the king for three months. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then his son became king. And he did evil in sight of the Lord. And then one of Josiah's brothers became king. And he did um, evil in the sight of the Lord. There was Jehoaz for three months. And Jehoiakim for 11 years. And Jehoiakim for three months. And then Zedekiah for 11 years. And he's the one who gets deported to Babylon. So we're coming now to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And um, the prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. So Habakkuk had got this message. Think in terms of 
probably the entire message before he speaks. Usually the prophet got the message from God, no matter what it was. You know, Jeremiah got some uh, really hard ones, and Ezekiel got some crazy ones, and they took the message, and then they went and spoke to God's people. Thus saith the Lord. Not Habakkuk. He doesn't like what God said, and he wants to have this out with God. And so uh, he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help? Do you, do you not listen? We don't know much about Habakkuk other than what we have in this book. Um, but he, he wants to know, God, are you not listening to my prayers? You act like I don't matter. I call for help, but you don't listen. Or I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. This is what is happening in the nation. Israel is divided into two kingdoms, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. It has been for years. The, the, the Old Testament is hard because it's complicated by a, a, a lot of things. And the way it starts out, when, when they split, is in the northern kingdom is the bad guys and the southern kingdom is the good guys. But the southern king, kingdom got very corrupt as well. And occasionally a good king would rise up to bring a restoration. And so the prophet Habakkuk has, has got this vision, this prophecy from God. And he says, why don't you care about injustice? Why don't you care about what's going on in our city? And, and he's probably in Jerusalem. We have good, good reason to think that. He, he may even be a priest as well as a prophet. But he, he's in the city and, and things are dark and people are evil and, and the politicians are corrupt and people are stealing and people are getting um, murdered. And uh, he's just overwhelmed with this evil. He says, why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Uh, destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflicts. He's talking about lawsuits in the city, and they're, they're not important. They're not, they're not about justice. They're about people wanting to get their ways and to hurt somebody else. And then he comes to this uh, conclusion. He says, therefore, the law is paralyzed. God, your word has no power. It is paralyzed. And people are now indifferent to it, indifferent to, the, to God's word. Now that's kind of sad, and it's kind of a warning for us, because sometimes we become indifferent to God's word. Yeah, I, know, I already know that. Yeah, I know God's important. Yeah, I know God wants me to do this. Habakkuk says, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. Nobody told him to sit, never say never, but he couldn't see it. The people are just indifferent. They don't, ex don't respect your word. They don't pay attention to it. It's just wrong, God. What's the matter with you? Do something. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Bad people rule the good people, the righteous people. There's no justice. It's not fair. Why don't you do something, God? And so 
Habakkuk starts with a complaining prophet. And now God is going to give an answer in verses 5 and, uh, through 11. And God's declaration of his intentions, and God speaks, verse 5, God will do something utterly amazing. And look what, what verse 5 says. God says, look at the nations and watch. Nations were uh, all those nations typically around Israel, but they were not Israeli people. They were not Jewish people. Um, they were called the nations. And God says to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you didn't see this coming. You are going to be utterly amazed at what I'm doing. I am doing something, Habakkuk. It's already on its way. This is not what you thought it should look like, maybe. Verses 6 through 11, God is going to discipline his own people. What? God is going to discipline his people. Well, Habakkuk wants justice. He wants the bad guys to be um, judged harshly, but he wants the good people to be delivered and to live happily ever after. Maybe. God will discipline his own people. How? Verse 6. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Babylonians have become the new world power at the Battle of Carchemish. They have defeated the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And... Um, I think it's worthy to have a map, you know, just to say we did. So if you look at Jerusalem, Mediterranean Sea on the left, uh, notice how small those bodies of water are. There's a little tiny one up north, and that's the Sea of Galilee, and that's where Jesus, uh, he lived and, and where he did his ministry around that Sea of Galilee. And then uh, upper right is Nineveh, and that's where Jonah had to go. And uh, they were the world power, but now Babylon is the world power. And they are sweeping the world with a very powerful army. And God says, I'm raising them up. This is my doing. I am wanting to do this. And I am going to discipline my own people. Verse 7, they are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves, and they promote their own honor. This is God speaking and describing the, the people he is raising up. This is, the, this is a, uh, the instrument of his judgment that he is going to use. The Babylonians are a feared and dreaded people. They've learned cruelty from the Assyrians already. And I won't go into the detail here, but we, we talked about that a little bit, about how cruel the Assyrian uh, armies were. They are a law unto themselves. And there is none higher than the Babylonian, the, the army and their king. And they are not interested in the God of Israel. And they... Uh, exalt their own superior or superiority over God. They 
adopt and they promote a new military strategy, uh, kind of revolutionary for its day. They embrace a horse for cavalry. Cavalry. I had to say cavalry for so many years because that was the name of our church. And other people would say cavalry. And now I get confused. <laughs> Verse 8. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. So they develop this cavalry concept for warfare. And it brings a great speed to their military machine. Um, They are swifter than leopards. The cavalry is fiercer than wolves at supper time. They maneuver like an eagle pursuing its prey. And then in verse 9, they all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They don't come for peace. They don't come to say, well, if you guys will be nice, we're going to let you do this. No, they come for violence. They glory in their brutality. They take prisoners like sand. That means they're innumerable. That means it's hard to count the number of prisoners that they take in. They kill and they enslave their enemies. Verse 10, they they mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and they capture them. They mock kings, and they scoff at uh, rulers, and they're not intimidated by anybody's military or anybody's military fortifications. Listen what, to what they did to King Zedekiah, and this, uh, this will be after Habakkuk, but this will be part of the fulfillment of his prophecy. In 2 Kings chapter 25, beginning at verse 1, and this is the fourth king after Josiah. So in the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army because they invaded Jerusalem three times. And the third time was the worst. They utterly, utterly destroyed it and tore down the temple and tore down the walls to the temple or the walls to the city. He encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. Now think about this. That's the way ancient armies used to conquer. They would build siege works. What does that mean? It means they got oxen carts, wooden carts, and they filled them with dirt, and they came up to the wall, and they dumped them, and then they went back and got more dirt, and they came back. I would guess they employed slaves and probably hundreds or thousands of ox carts just kept adding and building um, a siege work so that their army could walk up. The, the, The walls might be 20 feet high. They might be 40 feet high. They might be 50 feet high. We don't know how high the walls of Jerusalem were uh, in 587 B.C. for sure. 
The city was kept under siege until the 11th year. So for two years they were building um, this siege work of dirt. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine in the city had become so severe. This was another strategy. You basically starve your enemy inside their own city. It had become so severe that there was no food for the people to eat. Then the city wall was broken through, and the whole army fled at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Though the Babylonians were surrounding the city, they fled toward Arabah. The king took a little group of his army and, and tried to run away from Nebuchadnezzar. But the Babylonian army pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his soldiers were separated from him and scattered, and he was captured. He was taken to the king of Babylon at Riblah, so he's before Nebuchadnezzar, where sentence was pronounced on him. They killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then they put out his eyes and bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon." The Babylonians weren't impressed with other countries, their kings, or their military. They mock kings and they scoff at rulers, and they laughed at all fortified cities. Verse 11, they, then they sweep past like the wind and go on, guilty people whose own strength is their God. The ba Babylonians move quickly. That's part of their strategy. That's what, that's what made them unique and powerful and successful. They indeed are guilty people. And they view their own military might as the supreme thing of life. It has become their idol. And they worship it. They are a superior people to the rest of the world because of their army. They are devoted to their army and their power like a god. So a question for us is, why would God discipline his own people? Does it seem fair? Does what God's plan here seem fair? Now, one of the things for us, it's very important to understand the context of the Old Testament. The law of God, the law of God was given to Moses pretty much in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Altogether, there are about 613 commandments or commands, including the Ten Commandments. And God laid out what he intended in the book of Deuteronomy, beginning at chapter 28. And this, 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 uh, God gave these words to his people 800 years before Habakkuk, okay? Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 and 2. God said, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. With obedience comes blessing. And this was... Sometimes we call it the Palestinian covenant. These, this was an agreement that God's people made with God inside the territory and the land of Israel, the promised land, that which God gave them. If you obey 
I will bless you. What blessings? Blessed. You'll be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. Your kids and animals will thrive. Your crops will be plentiful. They will prosper. You will be able to defeat your enemies that rise up against you. God will make you a holy nation that will shine brightly before the rest of the watching world. And God will give you peace. Sounds pretty good to me, doesn't it? And then we come to verse 15. However, God said, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and you do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. What curses? You will be cursed in the city and in the country. He's talking about in the land of Israel. Your harvests will fail. Your families will suffer. Your livestock will suffer. You will experience various plagues and diseases. The weather patterns will destroy your crops, crops and the food will be scarce. And then we come to verse 25. Notice this one. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee from them in, this, in, in seven directions. And you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms on earth. Now, God said that 800 years earlier. And God's people agreed with all of this. Because God had done so much. He had taken them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he, and he did powerful plagues, and he led them through the wilderness, and he gave them the promised land just like he said, and, and, the, and his, God's enemies were driven out of the promised land. And God made this agreement with his people. And by the way, verse 25 is exactly what happened. Now, one of the things that's important to understand this is the history of Israel. If you read, starting from the book of Joshua onward, its obedience brings good things to God's people, and disobedience brings problem after problem after problem. And God raised up prophets. That's why we have so many in the Old Testament to hold God's people to these standards. Always the same standards. If you obey God's word, I will bless you. If you do not, here is some of the trouble that's coming. God's standard was the same. It was a law that was given to Moses. Next we see in verses 12 through 17, the prophet prophet's dilemma with God. So Habakkuk complained to God in his distress, and God answered, and he declared his plan, but Habakkuk didn't like it. And we come to uh, verses 12 and 13. God, why do you use evil people? Why would you want to use those Babylonians? They're really bad people. And so he begins his reasoning, verse 12, Lord, are you not from everlasting? Yes. Habakkuk knows that. God is eternal. You, Lord, uh, my God, my Holy One, he says. Now, this is, Habakkuk's God is personal. Habakkuk knows God. 
It's, it's his God. And uh, he, he knows that God is a holy one. He knows that God is eternal. You will never die. And then he says, you, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock. Habakkuk knows that God is his rock. He's solid. He doesn't change. God, you have ordained these evil people, the Babylonians, to bring punishment. Doesn't seem fair. I don't like it. You have ordered evil people to do your work. These evil people will be an instrument in God's hand. Doesn't make sense. Verse 13. Your eyes are too pure, pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. This is his um, dilemma. God is good. These people are evil. That's a problem. God, how can you be good? You are holy. You are pure. You are just. How can you do this? Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous Babylonians? It doesn't seem logical. It doesn't seem right. Verse 13, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous in themselves? Now Habakkuk begins to think like us. He compares himself with the Babylonians. He compares his own people the people that God is going to discipline with the Babylonians. You know, it's like, we are bad, but they are really bad, God. It's not fair. The problem of comparison, when we compare ourselves with others. I may be bad, but do you know how bad she is? Do you know how bad he is? But Habakkuk is not done in verses 14 and 15. He continues with these questions. God, why do you endorse injustice? Verse 14, you, you have made uh, people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. God, you are the creator, the, the creator God, and you made all of these people. You made us, God, and you made us like fish in the sea. We're just there to be caught. There's no ruler. It's as if God doesn't exist, as if the creator isn't taking care of his creatures. You made the Israelites like fish in the sea. There's no help. We're, we're to be caught like fish. Verse 15, the wicked foe pulls all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. God, the Babylonians catch us like fish and they make us their slaves. They use hooks. One of the practices of ancient armies when they, when they conquered a people and enslaved them was to put hooks in their nose and sometimes pull them by the hook. Or they put hooks in their lips and they would pull them along by 
the hooks. And it seems like Habakkuk is making a reference to that. He catches them in a net. He's talking like they're fish. And they come up in the, the, like a fishing net, a drag net. And the Babylonians just rejoice that they've, that they've made all of these slaves. The people are either killed or enslaved. And this is what Habakkuk saw in his prophecy. Verses 16 and 7. God, one more question. Why do you put up with these idolaters? He continues, verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices uh, to his net and burns incense in his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. This fishing thing, this fishing expedition, is an economic resource for the Babylonians. Slaves are taken from conquered peoples for profit. Wealth comes to Babylon through human trafficking. The military might is an idol. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. And ancient peoples really did worship sometimes their military power. Sometimes there was a god of war that they worshipped. In one case, a people worshipped a sword as their military might. Whatever the case is, the Babylonians have raised their military might and their pride to an idol. It is the ultimate and the most important Verse 17, our very last verse. Is he to keep emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? That's Habakkuk's question. God, is this going to go on and on? Is this what you have for us? God, I don't like it. I don't want it. And then we come to chapter 2, verse 1. And Habakkuk says, Okay, God, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. That's why we think it's Jerusalem. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. And so Habakkuk just is going to wait now. He's heard from God. He's let God know what he thinks. Now he's going to watch. So what does God say? Come back next week. That's what we're going to talk about. So a question for us. Why does God put up with evil today? Great question. I don't have all the answers. I'll give you a couple things to think about. Why does God put up with evil? Why does a good God put up with evil? Why does a good God allow evil to happen to, bad, to good people? First of all, remember he has already done something about evil. This is important. God sent his one and only son to deal with evil, to deal with sin. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Jesus came to the world to take care of the sin problem. That was God's plan. Not our plan, that was God's plan. And Jesus paid the penalty for sin. Sin was judged at the cross. Justice was poured out on Jesus so the sin penalty could be paid for. And forgiveness became an option for people. And that when we respond to the message that God gives us in the gospel that Jesus died for us, and when we respond in faith, we can be forgiven. Our sins can be forgiven. We can become a child of God. We can, we can take on a new spiritual nature. We can become a citizen of heaven and have eternal life. Just a few things. But not only that, when, when Jesus died on the cross, not only was the sin penalty paid for, but um, eternal death has been overcome. And Satan was judged. And Satan is judged right now. And he is condemned. His sentence has not been fully carried out. But he certainly has limitations. And you have resources in Christ. Secondly, sometimes God disciplines his own people. He did that with Israel. And I confess, it was pretty harsh stuff. It was pretty harsh. In... um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, we're reminded of this. And the writer of Hebrews says, and, and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? Yeah, it's, it's a word of encouragement about you being disciplined. That, that addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. This is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? I tried to play football in junior high and in high school and in college. My coaches never once tried to hurt me or to harm me. But you know what? It was pretty tough. And they made me do things I didn't always want to do. And they made me run more than I wanted to run. And they made me run until I was oxygen depleted and painfully gasping for air. And then they made me run again, and they called it wind sprints. And then they hit me. And they, let, they didn't hit me, but they let people hit me. And they let people try to crush me. And they made us, when we were exhausted, to stand up and, and run offensive plays over and over and over again. And I would go home totally exhausted. And sometimes I got really sore, and, and sometimes I... I was injured. It was painful. But they weren't trying to hurt me. They were trying to make us a better football team. They were making me a better football player. They were bringing out the best in me. God can be like that. He uses 
his discipline as spiritual training. Our circumstances may not be great, but he can do a good work in us. And he can bring out the very best in us. The third thing I would say about why does God put up with evil is that he's being patient with people who don't know him yet. Right now, God is being patient with people. God was really patient with the Ninevites. And he's being patient with people today. As a reminder, look at 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, instead he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so you may have to go through some hard things because God is just being patient. He's just being slow about keeping his promise. And he wants to see other people come to faith in Christ. And that may mean that for a while, sometimes we might have to experience evil when we don't want to. Because God is not finished bringing people into a personal relationship with Christ. God is being patient with sinners just like he was with us. You know, that's why we're here. That's why we're a church. We're here to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. And we're not here to be happy. God wants you and I to show our world what he can do when we go through difficult circumstances. And the big question is, can, can we trust him when, when things aren't going well, when, when we don't like what's happening in our life? Can we trust him? It's the issue of faith, and that's the very issue that Habakkuk is dealing with. Now, if you know the story of Corey Ten Boom, you know um, she wrote the book called The Hiding Place that became a movie. It tells her story. She and her family were Dutch Christ followers who helped Jewish people in Amsterdam escape uh, the Nazis from the Holocaust because they were, the Jew, Jews would be deported from Amsterdam back to Germany. Corey and her family were arrested by the Nazis and they, and they sent them to concentration camps. Corey and her sister were sent to Ravensbrück camp. And if you know the story, the camp was extremely overcrowded, pretty much like they all were. And it was infested with fleas. And I imagine there were a lot of flea-infested camps. Um, a Bible was smuggled into the camp and smuggled into their dormitory. And so at night, the women in that dorm would gather for Bible studies. And one of those nights, they read that in all things, they should give thanks. And so Corey's sister, Betsy, said, I think we should give thanks for the fleas. Corey thought that was ridiculous. But over the next several months, an unusual, unusual thing happened because of the fleas. The guards wouldn't enter the barracks, and no women in that barracks were assaulted by the guards. And the Bible studies continued uninterrupted, and the, and the fleas proved to be God's protection. 
Now, I know we live in unusual times by our, by our, our own standards. And our, our worlds have, have uh, provided new problems as well as old problems. And my question is just this. What are we thankful for? What are we thankful for today? And so um, my suggestion this week is, and, and um, I've got just good reason to ask you because you're supposed to be thankful on Thursday. This week, take some time and make a list. What are the problems you're facing? They're real problems. What are they? Write them down. Make a list. And after you do that, make another list of what are you thankful for? And, be, and give it some thought. Don't, don't hurry through it. What are you thankful for? What can you thank God for? Let's stand for prayer. Father, we uh, come to the book of Habakkuk, and um, it seems uh, hard and difficult, and we don't understand all that's happening. We don't understand the why of things like that happened and have happened and perhaps will happen. God, you are God, and, and you are all-wise and all-powerful and all-knowing. You are the God of truth. You are the God of love and mercy, and we worship you. You are the God who saves, and we just say thank you. You are the God who works all things together for good, even things that can be bad, and you can produce good things out of those. God, give us eyes to see what you're doing. Give us eyes to see the good things. God, give us thankful hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen. <laughs>